Um, as you can tell, uh, as Didi read from us this morning, we are diving back into the book of Acts. And our hope is, over the course of the next couple of months, that we will finish our study of this wonderful book. We'll finish sort of our journey through the book of Acts. Now, as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've seen that Paul is on a journey as the gospel sort of expands and makes progress across the region. One of Luke's ways of showing us what this kingdom expansion looks like is he sort of zooms in on individual cities and shows us specifically what happens when these followers of Jesus bring this revolutionary message into a particular region. And so we began sort of this section of Acts by looking at Cyprus as a pass, the gospel as, as the, the pass from one end of the island to the next, going from Salamis to Paphos, and then on to Asia Minor after Cyprus. From there, it went into the cities of Iconium and Lystra. And then the, then the, we saw this remarkable way as the gospel broke in to, uh, to Europe by going to Philippi, and then on to Thessalonica, and then Berea. And the, the passage that is before us this morning is really a wonderful passage, and it is a, it's a great, great passage for us. It teaches us and tells us sort of how the gospel went into the city, this influential, prominent, back-in-the-day city of Athens, and what exactly happened there. During this time, it's important to remember that Athens was a, a very influential city, a very influential. One, one historian describes the city at, at Paul's time, and when he located and found himself in this city, one, one historian describes the city at this time as sort of in the, the late afternoon of her glory. It was a massively influential city throughout the Greek world, but it was sort of, it's it's best days were sort of behind it in some way, you could say that. It was still to this point when Paul was here, it was grand, filled with grand, beautiful architecture, temples and structures. It had a tremendous, it's a city that had a tremendous influence on Western civilization, creating an example of democracy that would have a major impact throughout the history of the world. There, there's, you cannot sell the influence of the city short. I mean, it was incredibly significant. It's the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It had a tremendous impact on philosophy, on the arts and on the literature, and on really shaping the culture of the day. While Paul arrived in the city after its sort of glory days, Athens is still a city whose identity is related at this point to its intellectual accomplishments. And it would have very much seen itself as the intellectual capital of the world. People who loved to concern themselves with the issues and the ideas of the day would have filled this city. The reality is Athens, when Paul was there, not unlike our city that we find ourselves living in today. It would be as close as you could find to a college town in the first century. Now, last week, we explored together sort of the unique place that Christians occupy in this world. We exist as, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you exist in this, this, this really unique position as somebody who is both a part of a marginalized community, a community that is sort of pushed to the margins in some sorts, but also God has called us, and that's consistent with what God has called us to be, but he's also called us to be an influential community, a community that sort of pushes back looks and hopes and prays to make a difference in the world in which God has placed us, to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And as a result, what we considered last week is given this unique place that Christians are supposed to occupy in our day and age, how are we to live? And we answer that question from 1 Peter chapter 1 with two simple words, be holy. That's what 
God's call is on all of us as followers of Jesus to pursue holiness. Now, what we're gonna see today, this is helpful in another sense. It's sort of as if we're zooming even more in on what God requires from us, not just as Christians, but as Christians who live in Iowa City. What does life look like for the Christian, who, the one who follows Jesus, but who calls Iowa City their home? Now, I can remember a number of years ago, there's an individual who moved from Texas. This was probably long before many of you attended. Maybe some of you were here at Parkview at the time. His name was Josh Malone, but he moved from Texas and he came to Iowa City. And I can remember oftentimes when he was a seminary student and came on staff at Parkview, I remember oftentimes when he would talk about this this opportunity that he had that he discovered while he was in Texas to, to be a pastor on a staff team at, at Iowa City. He was filled with excitement and jumped at the opportunity. And as it was announced at his church that he was gonna be taking this new position in Iowa City, there was excitement, there was encouragement, enthusiasm, people were excited for him and this wonderful opportunity, but there was also a particular individual that caught his attention. This individual was not encouraged. This individual was not excited. This individual approached Josh after word came out what he was gonna be doing, and this individual offered a word, not of encouragement, but a word of caution. He found out and he went directly to Josh and he said, you cannot move to that community. Thought, kind of caught Josh's attention. What do you mean I can't go to Iowa City? And, and the person's logic was because that community, given its unique relationship with the university, is a community that's filled with darkness. And you'll be of no use there. In fact, you might even trip up and your faith, don't go to Iowa City. Now, there, this, this mentality, this idea is, well, it may, for some of you, I can see in your faces, be kind of surprising. I think the unfortunate reality is there is a number of people who hold that view. And what I believe our text is calling us to this morning is that as we consider the location, the geography, the place in which God has placed us, my prayer this week has been that as we preach this message, as we read this text, as we consider Paul and as he navigated through this intellectual capital of the world, that you and I would be encouraged and that we would be emboldened with the message that Jesus has given us and the opportunity that is before us as we consider the place in which we live. The, the big idea of this message, what we'll see as we go through this text is that Jesus is better than the false gods that this world has to offer. Jesus is far better than all of the false gods that this world can offer. And because that's true, as his church, we need to tell people about it. To a world that's caught up in idolatry, we have the opportunity to tell others the good news of Jesus. And my hope is that as we consider how Paul does this here in Athens, that we'll get sort of a picture, an idea of what that could look like in our own context. As we walk through this passage, really it's two main points today. First, I want us to consider Paul's approach. How does he conduct himself upon arrival in this city? What does he do? 
And then secondly, I want us to consider Paul's argument. As Didi read the scripture, you, you can tell the text, that there's the, the vast majority of it is a message. It is a sermon. Let's examine together. What is he arguing in his sermon? We'll, we'll end with some application. We'll do some application throughout, but we'll also sort of zero in at the end on how can we apply this in our setting. So first, Paul's approach. Now, first thing I want us to consider is what does Paul see? Let's pay attention to what Paul sees as he arrives in Athens, given the rich history and the influential reputation of this city, Paul would have had no shortage of opportunities to sort of go sightseeing. You could imagine if you were in this city, I mean, just imagine all the things that you could lay your eyes on. This would be awesome. Some of you maybe have been there before, seen the sights yourself. Imagine what you would have done had you been in this position. Well, Paul, very much like you and I would do, chooses to do some sightseeing. What does he see? It's interesting. He doesn't take note of the beauty and the brilliance that the city has to offer. No mention of that. But rather we see in verse 16, if you look at the text, it says, he saw that the city was full of idols. Language here says that the city was sort of smothered with idols or swamped by idols. Athens was at the time referred to by one historian as one great altar. A Roman satirist exaggerates when he says that it was easier for you to find a God in Athens than a man. The city would have been filled with countless temples, shrines, statues, and altars that would have completely littered the city. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena. Elsewhere, images of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Diana, Neptune, the entire Greek pantheon was represented, and they were, to be sure, beautiful sights to be seen. They were made of stone, brass, gold, silver, ivory, marble. Everything that was of value went into these idols. They were crafted in a beautiful way, but Paul wasn't impressed by their beauty. He was provoked by their presence. That's what he saw. How does it feel? The, the, the verse says that his spirit was provoked with him. And as his eyes gazed the terrain, as he saw one idol after another, the Bible says that Luke says that his spirit was provoked within him. He grew greatly disturbed, immensely distressed. This is a word that's not commonly used in the New Testament. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, you would see that it was a word that was used regularly about how God would feel, what would happen to God when he would consider the idolatry of his nation. As he saw these idols, it did not sit well with him. He was provoked. What does he do about it? Does he follow the words of that individual who gave advice to Josh? Does his provocation cause him to say, I gotta get out of here. This city is filled with darkness and idolatry. There's no place for me. Well, to be sure, his provocation does cause him to act, but not like that, thank God, not like that. Paul's sightseeing visit will turn into an evangelistic effort. Paul isn't, it's interesting to notice, what he doesn't do as he considers the idols. Paul is not immediately filled with rage and indignation, so much so that he runs into the streets, hollering and screaming, rebuking the people and their sin. He doesn't do that. He doesn't suddenly morph into an iconoclast, 
running around with a hammer in his hands, shattering one icon after another, one idol to the ground after another, causing a major disruption. He doesn't do that. Rather, the text says, we're told, that he goes into the synagogues and the marketplace and he reasons. He reasons with the people of the city. Now, this should be familiar. As we've been studying through the book of Acts, we see that this is one of Paul's key strategies. He goes into a community. He finds those. He goes to a synagogue, usually finds those who have some knowledge of God, and he sort of starts there. So this part will be consistent with what Paul has been doing. But he doesn't just stop in the synagogues. He also goes into the marketplace to a non-Jewish, academic, intellectual place where ideas would be exchanging from one person to the other. And what does he do? He reasons with them. He takes his message to the streets and reasons with them. Now, why would he do this? I think it's an important question to ask. Why would Paul respond in this way? Well, I think it reveals sort of two things about beliefs that Paul holds deeply. And I think they're beliefs that we should share and that would do us well as we consider how to sort of live in our context. The first is Paul is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt He is absolutely convinced that the truth of Jesus was able to stand its ground against the leading thinkers of the day. Why would Paul go to the marketplace? Why would he go to this, to reason with people who are sort of the intellectuals of the day? Well, he's only gonna do that if he believes that the the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and that it can hold its weight stand its ground, that it belongs in that arena. You know, back in the day, I used to, the field house, um, before they built the wellness center, is that what it's called? The field house over there by the hospital used to be just a mecca of basketball. Six basketball courts up top, and they were just filled with basketball games. I mean, you could go up there almost any time of the day. It was part of the reason why my GPA struggled so much the first two years of my academic career at the university, it was because I found myself playing basketball nonstop. And what was so awesome about it is not just the, the abundance of games that were happening, the tremendous amount of people. I mean, people from Cedar Rapids, from all over the area would come and play basketball, but you could also walk in that gym, and it would not be unusual to find, I mean, let's say you win the game, the way it would work is that whoever team calls next is the team you gotta play, and whoever win stays. And so it would not be unusual that if you're having a good day and you got a good solid five that you're running, that you're running basketball with, the next team that steps on the court is a team that is former University of Iowa Hawkeyes, maybe a member of their team, or maybe a former NBA player or NFL player. I remember one time Dallas Clark was had next, and I was like, no thanks, right? And oftentimes I would find myself completely overmatched. And I would feel like, okay, this game is happening sort of around me. I don't belong here. I don't know if you find yourself in a similar situation, sort of outmatched, outside of maybe your ability, in over your head. I think there's a lot of us in Christianity, maybe um, some today here, who feel like our message cannot stand its ground among the intellectuals of our day. We don't feel like we can argue or we can reason. And as we see, as we go through Paul's speech, there's nothing in it that is earth-shattering for us. It's basic, simple, biblical truths. And here he is convinced that he can hold, that it can stand its ground, 
And he takes it to the place that are the thought leaders of the day, and he reasons with them. He's convinced that his message belongs in that arena. Number one, what else is, why else is he doing? Well, I also believe he, he does it because he believes very much so that those people need to hear what he has to say. I mean, consider the opportunity, the, the opportunity to, to reason, to, to convince these thought leaders of the truth. Think about our opportunity at the University of Iowa, thought leaders, leaders, the sort of culture curators of the day here in Iowa City. Think about the individuals that have gone through this university, that have lived in our community. What a phenomenal opportunity. What a phenomenal opportunity. Hopefully it's not an opportunity that we miss. I mean, often, I mean, like I said, Paul could have just hightailed it and run and said, forget this, I'm out of here. No, but he reasoned, he stayed. And he reasoned. As Paul reasons with them in the marketplace, he draws the attention of, we're told, Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans, they would have sort of been different, these two groups of people and what they believed. Their belief system, really their worldview was, was different. The Epicureans thought the gods would, were so remote and uninvolved in the universe that they were, they were just quite unconcerned with humanity and they really had no influence or need to sort of intervene or be involved. As a result, we should, they said, reason with themselves, we should sort of maximize pleasure in this world, minimize pain, and use that sort of to govern how we decide one thing after the next from one day to the next. This other group of people, the Stoics, they were a group of people that had the, received the nickname the philosophers on the porch. As they were called, they acknowledged the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, they believed that life was filled with both good and bad. You can't avoid the bad, so your response ought to be just sort of to grin and bear it. Hard things come into life, but at the end of the day, I'm in charge. Therefore, I stand tall, stick out my chin, take whatever comes. These are not an ignorable people in the city of Athens. These are the two groups that he interacts with. And as he does so, their, their accusation of him, some say he's a babbler, they want to hear more about what he has to say. I mean, they have to give him a chance. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. This is, in Greek, means Mars Hill. So this is Paul's sermon in the Mars Hill. This hill was situated a little northwest of the Acropolis. It was at one time the location of the Supreme Court, the Council of Athens. Members saw themselves very much as the curators of the city's religion and morals and education and anything that was important. So Paul leans in. And God provides him, as a result, a phenomenal opportunity. That's his approach. Let's look at his argument. His argument kind of begins in verse 22. If you got your Bibles open, you could look there. So Paul standing in the midst, given this great opportunity, these big thinkers, decision makers of the day, says to the men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. As we consider how Paul argues, I wanna first take a sort of big look at what he's trying to do. This is really important for us to see. The first thing that Paul seeks to do is to make a point of connection, a point of contact. 
What Paul is wondering as he approaches these people is as he's looking, he's thinking to himself, how can I bring the gospel to bear on this people in this unique community with this unique worldview? He looks within the culture and what he's looking for is a place where he can bring the gospel of Jesus to connect with these people. As he does this, he wants to, he's careful to sort of affirm what he can affirm as he makes this point of connection. I perceive that you are a religious people. Now, he's not at this point making any statement about their religion, whether it's good or bad, but hey, he's affirming that they're religious. And he uses this as an opportunity to speak truth to them in a way that they will hear. Paul, the reality is, came to bring a, a d- different belief system. And he was re- surrounded by people who sort of wore their religion on a sleeve. He sees this as an opportunity. I see you are very religious people. Point of connection. Secondly, Paul is careful that after he makes the point of connection, what he wants to do is expose their inconsistency to expose the inconsistency or the insufficiency within their belief system. He wastes no time and points directly to the problem. His audience, they were Athenians. They were the gatekeepers of knowledge to the Western world for centuries. This was their pride. This was their identity. All the knowledge that they had and that they communicated, they were supposed to know everything. But when considering the most critical truth, they came short. They did not know God. And it wasn't Paul saying this. This is important. Paul wasn't the one who was saying this. They themselves were saying this. The inconsistency was right there. There's an altar to the unknown God. In all of your intellect, with all of your brilliance, You yourself say there's something you don't know. And what you don't know, I've come to proclaim. Now, at this point, if you're an Athenian, if you're sitting there listening to him, you have no option but to continue to listen. He's winning their ear. It's brilliant. Now, if he were to stop right there, I think we could all agree it would be a failure. But he doesn't. He goes on for pointing out the inconsistency in their belief to the consistency of the gospel, the insufficiency in their worldview to the sufficiency of a biblical worldview. From there, Paul takes them on a journey through the biblical narrative. You'll notice that he's not quoting scripture, but he is quoting scripture essentially. Ultimately leading them to Jesus. From their false gods and their inability to deliver to the one true God and his promise to satisfy their heart's longing. What you worship as unknown, I've come to proclaim to you, he can be known. And your inability to know him isn't due to his lack of revelation, but rather your rejection of his revelation and your ignorance to him. So that's, that's Paul's method. It's three simple moves. Make a point of connection. Where's the door? Affirm what you can affirm. Secondly, reveal, expose how that belief system just falls short. 
and what their hearts are longing for, that belief system, that idolatry cannot deliver. And then point them to the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus. So how does he do that? Let's look at his, that's his method, look at his message. It's important to remember, as I said before, that as we walk through this, and I'll try to do so quickly, that, that Paul's message is just based on, on basic biblical truths, okay? As we, as we see one sort of heading after another, these, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, these are probably headings that, that you take for granted, all right? But he's, he's sort of doing it in a unique way um, with a unique group of people. So the first thing is that he's, he's demonstrating, he's, he's proving, arguing to them that God is the creator and the sustainer of life. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though that he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, this may sound elementary to us, but it challenged and directly confronted his listeners' worldview. The Stoics were pantheists, Epicureans, practical atheists. The basic truth of God as creator denied the premises of both of these groups. Paul's pressing into the fact that God has not left himself in the world without a witness. It is true that not all peoples have the sacred scriptures, but all people at all times have had a witness to God through creation. He spells this argument out in greater detail in Romans 1. Could be some good reading for later this week. He continues to build his case, claiming that God is also the life giver. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God creates creation. He sustains creation. He's very much involved with creation. And unlike your belief system, he won't provide for him. He or we don't provide for him. Rather, he provides for us. He's completely pushing back against their beliefs. He confronts the Epicurean belief that God was absent. He confronts the Stoics belief that God was in everything. He goes on to show them that God is also sovereign. He emphasizes that God is in the world, he sustains it, and he also guides the affairs of men. Look at verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. While he is God and he is knowable, Paul is saying there's aspects of his plans or his counsels that are sort of hidden from us. Parts of life that, that while determined by him are not spelled out for us in scripture. So we don't know certain aspects of the future. We don't know how national or global affairs will sort of play out. Nevertheless, God's in control. He does have plans and they will come to pass. Paul is saying God is sovereign over the world that he made. And then finally, he says that as a result of his, his creative work, his sustaining work, and his sovereign work, reality, we should, as a people, be pursuers of him. We should seek him. If all of this is true, if this is God who is involved in creation and his plans are at work throughout the world, he's a God who can be known. And we, therefore, have an obligation to seek him out and to find him. This is the whole purpose of this revelation, the reason why he has shown, given us the scriptures, the reason why he's revealed himself in creation, so that we would pursue him, so that we would seek him out and find him. Look at what it says in 27 and 28, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is unusual language, feel their way toward him. We have a game that we used to play here at the spot where we would have kids sit in a circle and uh, we take a kid from each team, stick him in the circle, and we blindfold them. And then we give each kid a, a noodle, one of those uh, pool noodles. 
right? And then we'd spin around a million times. And so they couldn't see anything. They were blindfolded. They'd have a noodle in their hand. And the way you win the game is just be the first one to find the opponent and whack them, okay? And so what would happen for about, I don't know, a couple of minutes is you would see students and they would be feeling, listening, groping their way around the room until they discovered some sign of life and then just wreak havoc on it, all right? And that's the image that Paul gives us here. This is who we are in this world. We are a people that while we are blinded by our ignorance, God is present in this world, is calling us to him, and, and we ought to be feeling our way towards him. And as we seek him, when we find him, the next phase of what we ought to do is we're supposed to repent of the sin that's in our heart. Turn to him and repent. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. This is exactly what they thought. This is what their idols were made out of. An image formed by the art and imagination of man for people who are so brilliant, you think that the God that you formed is real? It's come from your imagination, from your own hands. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We could see why Paul would call for repentance. He hasn't mentioned the gross immorality of the Athenians. He could have, to be sure of it. He didn't mention their intellectual arrogance. He could have. There was a sense where they did not know better in these ways, but not so with the revelation of God. They did know better, and so do we. Being guilty of rejecting God as he revealed himself to them, they needed to repent. Why? Verse 31, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. God has appointed a final day of reckoning when Jesus will be the judge. See, it's interesting when you examine Paul's preaching. Always is centered This one is leading up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the proof that they need that God has drawn near. This was the badge that they wore. Their identity was that of an intellectual people, an all-knowing people. Paul tapped into their quest for knowledge and from there showed them that they could not know all that this world had to offer apart from repenting of their sins and knowing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Apart from that, their heart's deepest longings would be left unmet, unfulfilled, unsatisfied. It didn't work. The question is, as he preaches this message, you might be asking, does it work? What's his effect? Does it work? Is there a mass repentance, conversion, revival? The answer is no, there's not. Twofold, two things that we know happen when you look at the end of the text. One is people mocked him. And the second is they asked him to come back. Actually, there's three responses. Mockery, come back, we'll give you a hearing. But then there's two. One of the leading intellectuals of the day and a woman who was there as well put their faith and trust in Jesus. The outcomes of what our message is is ultimately left up to God but he's called us as his followers to be faithful. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, to be sure of it, it's a classic. 
gives us an example of what gospel proclamation that begins where the listeners are. I'll say that again. It gives us an example of faithful gospel preaching that begins where the listeners are. And goes on to present the truths of the gospel message in a logical and biblical way. This is apologetics and action. Paul started his message by addressing the false beliefs of those gathered there that day and then used those beliefs as a way of ultimately pointing his listeners to Jesus. It's ultimately what God calls us to do in our community, in our location, regardless if you live in Iowa City, Corvo, Kelowna, North Liberty, it doesn't matter. It's the exact same obligation and exact same opportunity. In closing, just wanna point out two observations as we zero in just on some application. First is, we live in a world where there is an increasing desire, as we think of applying this and living it out, two things. We live in a world where there is an increasing desire for unity across the human race. There seems to be, regardless of your belief system, at least in our culture today, a strong desire for unity throughout all of humanity. I'm not commenting on the nature of that desire or making any comments, whether it's good or bad, just stating a fact, it exists. You see it in bumper stickers, window signs, all around us, political ad campaigns, everywhere. There's an increasing desire for unity throughout humanity. Secondly, there's a increase in distaste for any kind of intolerance especially religious intolerance, which is seen as a threat to the unity that the world has held up as a ultimate virtue. Therefore, because of those two things, if we are determined to live and declare the gospel here in Iowa City, then we have to be ready to do what it takes. We have to be ready to put in the effort and to pay the cost. It will require us. What effort does it take, you might be asking? Well, I can think of a few few things. It will require us to understand how our friends and our neighbors think. It will require us to understand how our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our colleagues think to try and understand what they believe, what they place their hopes in, what they find value from. We will not be effective in our evangelism if we are sidestepping the questions and the problems that they face. Like Paul, we would do good to look around. I think one of the, the, this would be a phenomenal application in the context of your community groups. I tried doing it in a few circles this week. Look around our community. What idols? If you were to just get sort of transplanted, parachuted into Iowa City, and you just look around our community, what idols would you see? What idols would you see? And then, this is, I'm not gonna do this in my message. I'm gonna have you do it in your groups. So if you're not in a community group, this is, this is the time to sign up. Question number one, what idols do the people in our community face? If you're a community group leader, write these down because there's probably not gonna be an email, okay? What idols do do our people face? What do they believe? What's the belief systems around us? Two, how can we find a point of contact within those idols? How do we affirm what we can affirm? 
How can we open, find an open door given that belief system? Three, how do we expose it? And four, how do we point them to Christ? How do we expose how that belief system falls short? And four, how do we show how Jesus gives them ultimately what they're looking for? I mean, the reality is we're surrounded by idols. Some that are unique to our context, but some that aren't. Finally, finish with these two questions for you just personally to reflect on. Remember, we, beginning we said this is sort of why Paul decided to interact with the community and not just hightail and run. First, because he believed the message of Jesus could stand its ground. Do you believe that? And secondly, because he believed that the people, his audience, the people of that city, desperately needed to hear it. If we don't believe those two things, our evangelistic efforts will be non-existent in our community. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you just for this really wonderful model that Paul gives us here in Acts 17. And um, thank you for um, just his faithful proclamation of the gospel and Lord, I thank you for how useful it is for us as we think about how to reach our city with the truth, the hope that only comes from Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would show us, open our eyes, much like Paul, that we would be able to see and understand what it is that our neighbors are giving their lives for. Give us windows into their hearts and into their minds. Lord, allow us to be students of our city. And from there, Lord, I also just pray for your grace, Lord, and that you would reveal to us, Lord, how we can sort of expose the inconsistency and the insufficiency of those belief systems, Lord, and ultimately point them to you. Lord, our heart, our hope here is that we would be a church in Iowa City that is unapologetically for Iowa City. And I pray that you would help us to be students of our context and students of your word and your truth. Lord, we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.